Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Story Blender. This week's episode comes to you from the Story Vault, our collection of past interviews. We're excited to share it with you and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, almost every year I go to a conference in New York City called Thriller Fest, and it's some of the premier writers of suspense and crime novels in the world, and we usually do a book signing, and I usually get set next to our guest for today because of our last names. Peter James is the international best-selling author of 19 novels. His Detective Superintendent Roy Grace series has been translated into 37 languages and sold more than 19 million copies worldwide. Peter has received the Diamond Dagger Lifetime Achievement Award for crime writing and is also the author of many short stories and stage plays. In 2015, he was voted by W.H. Smith readers as the best crime author of all time. And I can tell you from sitting next to him, signing books, that he's a great guy, kind and generous, and I appreciate him being on the show today. So, Peter, thanks for being here. Thank you, Steve. Um, you know, it's good that our names threw us together. I'll be <laughs> <years> back. <laughs> Well, um, it's been good getting to know you, and I know you've also been in, um, responsible for some of the international relations with international thrillers, thriller writers. Um, I think you were um, the vice president or the president of the International Relationship Committee. Yeah, I still am for Thriller Fest, which is great. I'm, I'm their kind of permanent roving ambassador. And I think the great thing about... Through writing is these days is how the international barriers seem to be coming down more and more. There's a long, a long time when there was really very little crossover around the world, and particularly between my country of England and and, and America. Um, very few English authors for a long time have been known in America and, and the other way around. Um, and I think. One of the writers, if you like, to break the international mold was Stig Larsson with, with the girl and the dragon tattoo. And oh, sure, yeah. That followed. Um, and some of the Scandi-Noir writers. Um, and I think it's... I've often kind of discussed what it is, why so few big American authors like your good self don't feature that prominently on the UK best-selling best list. Um, and, 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 and the exact reverse with some of the biggest English names. And there is, a, I think, to some extent, there's an element of the difference between the way the British historically have written mystery hmm. novels and the way the Americans... You know, the, the Brits tend to, still today, for a large part, follow in the footsteps of Agatha Christie. Okay, where sure. You, you have a structure where you have a dead body in chapter one uh, and the rest of the novel is a puzzle to slow it. So it's kind of plodding police procedure, a big puzzle that the kind of British readers seem to like. Whereas in America, almost always, um, 
you tend to have the victim alive but in peril at the end of chapter one. Hmm. You know, there's a very kind of difference in style, I, I find. And so with American thriller writing, you tend to have much more pace and tension. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I know that, um, you know, as I've taught on building suspense and building mystery, very often I will use that example similar to what you said, where mystery, you have a crime that occurs and you try to solve it. And suspense is a crime is going to occur and you have to stop it. And so sometimes people will, when they're writing suspense, will say, well, I wanted to keep information from the reader so I could keep them in suspense. But actually, that does the opposite. It keeps them in mystery. But to have suspense, you need to give them information about the danger or peril that you just mentioned that the, um, that the character we care about is in. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, I mean, there's a classic example on the very few British books pre, say, the last decade, which broke that mold was that the book was the inspiration to me to become a a writer, which was Graham Greene's Brighton Rock. And the opening lines of that book are just pure thriller. Uh, the opening line is, uh, within three hours of arriving in Brighton, Hale knew they meant to kill him. Nice. You know, that's... And at the end of the chapter, he is still alive, even more worried, <laughs> because they are going to kill him. Uh, uh, and, the, and that, I think, is... It, is is a real classic example of a kind of great thriller opening. You know, who is yeah. Hale? Why is he in Brighton? Who's going to kill him? You know, you've got all those questions. And at the same time, you've met the victim, you've got a name, you've got a little bit of identity. And, and Graham Greene goes on in the second line to describe him with his kind of, his inky fingers and his bitten nails and his kind of nervous look around him. Nice. And um, when I think of thrillers and suspense, I, I think of a lot of times uh, real vivid writing like that um, and not so much flowery and descriptive. Um, do you find that's true for yours as well? Absolutely. I think, I mean, I think there's been a huge change. You feel like if you go back to the time, go back to the British Victorian writers like Thackeray, for example, where there weren't a thousand other things vying for the reader's time. There wasn't the internet, there wasn't computer games, there wasn't Netflix. Um, you know, there, there was either books or doing tapestry <laughs> in the <laughs> evening. Um, you know, they could afford in their books. You know, Thackeray is a wonderful scene in, in, in Vanity Fair where they, this, this woman, Becky Sharp, is traveling on a train up through Yorkshire. And he says, dear reader, let me take you aside from the story a minute and tell you a little bit about this beautiful Yorkshire Dales that we're traveling through. And you could not <laughs> do that today. <laughs> you could no. do that have lost your reader. You know, there's, um, when, I, when I was... I guess honing my craft in my kind of early days of writing, I worked a lot in television, and I, I remember selling the pilot of a show to ABC Television, and it was a big experience for me because I'd always kind of worked in the UK before, and suddenly I was in this kind of writer's box, uh, ABC, and I'm t almost the first thing I was told is you've got to have a gag every 14 seconds. Huh. And I'm like, what? And it's because they reckon that at any given moment in time, 50% of the American television audience is channel surfing. So they, they, they land wow. on your show 
see a gag and they go, oh, that's funny, and wait for the next one. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't put a gag every 14 seconds in my, in my thrillers, but what <laughs> right. I do do, I am mindful of that. But if you don't have something that, you know, I, I kind of have an invisible sign in front of me when I write, which says, does it drive the narrative forward? Will the reader want to keep reading? Mm. And it's like, what is going to make the reader read the next paragraph? And you just can't assume they're going to unless you're compelling them to. And you've got to find that way to compel them to keep reading. Now, one of the ways that um, you've compelled people to keep reading in your stories is creating interesting uh, and intriguing villains. And as, a, as a, an experienced crime writer, I thought maybe you could give us some insights on how do we create crimes or villains that, um, that are engaging to readers that they really want you know, to read. And, and it might be even kind of one of the fun aspects of, of thriller writing is creating those villains that become so memorable to readers. Oh, I, I absolutely, I love creating villains. And I think if you go back over the kind of, the canon of history and fiction, you know, going back into Shakespeare and, and even beyond, um, a lot of the, the great villains in Lady Macbeth is a great example. Drac, Count Drac, you know, Lady Macbeth was a monster, but actually there was something sneaking weird mad about her. Hmm. Um, Count Dracula, you know, he was a villain, but he had style. <laughs> um, you know, Frankenstein was his monster, and we actually feel sorry for him because he turns to Doctor, you know, the monster turns to Doctor Frankenstein and says, "Look, I didn't want to exist. You made me." Yeah. Uh, and you immediately have empathy for him. And, you know, I think a great, great modern villain um, is Silence of, in Silence of the Lambs is Hannibal Lecter because almost Thomas Harris broke the rules. It was the, probably the first novel that I can really think of that was a great example of instead of having good versus evil, you actually had bad versus evil. Huh. <laughs> You know, you had this monster Hannibal Lecter who's actually kind of the rather endearing good guy who goes after Buffalo Bill, the, the Skinner. Yeah. You know, and, 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 yeah. I always remember, I can't remember the ending of the book exactly. I think he said, I'm going off to have dinner with an old friend. Uh, I think so, yeah. Certainly in the movie and with a nice Chianti and the salsa beans. And you, 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 know, you smile. And I think that the, the lesson that I learned very early on about creating any character is you must love all your characters, uh, and in particular, you must love the villains. Mm. Because if you hate your villain, it's not going to be an interesting character. It's far more interesting to have a villain that you actually understand and create some kind of empathy with the reader with. Uh, and there's a very, there is a, a, a trick that I was taught years ago um, if you want to have somebody lovable, give them something to love. Mm. Uh, and even if you look at Silence of the Lambs and you've got Buffalo Bill and he's captured the senator's daughter and he's holding her down the bottom of the well, this monster who skins people and wears their skin has a pet poodle. Huh, so he can't, yeah. be all, can't be all bad, can he? <laughs> That's um, that's a good point, and um, I think 
you know, I, I love that idea. I was just writing it down, giving him something to love about the character. I never really made that connection with him and the poodle before, but that was probably a very purposeful choice by Thomas Harris. I'm sure, because he's an immensely intelligent writer, and I think really knew in that book how to pull uh, yeah, and in Red Dragon before, how, 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 how to pull the, the reader's strings. Uh, in, a, in a very clever and gripping way. I think it's interesting, too, that in Sounds of the Lambs and even Red Dragon, you don't have any motive for Hannibal Lecter. In other words, we don't know his backstory. He, we just know here's who he is, how he is. Why does he do it? I don't know. He's crazy, yep. I guess. He's insane. Yeah, and no, it kind of leaves us to sort of guess. I mean, Yeah, I like that. Mm. I mean, I think that um, the you know you don't always have to give dot every T and dot every I. I think in, in writing, the, the, the principal role of us writers is to fire the reader's imagination, is to make the reader actually do the work. Um, you know, if you if you if you think about horror movies, there is almost no horror movie you ever saw in your life that is as scary as the monster that you conjure up in your mind when you're reading a scary book. <laughs> that's, that's so true. That's, that's the writer doing their job. You know, the, the you know you've got to make that person walking down the dark. You know, the reader think that person walk that you know person walking down the dark alley late at night hearing footsteps behind, you know, you put the reader in that person's shoes and, and make them start sweating. My wife was watching a show on the Hallmark Channel a number of years ago, and uh, the Hallmark Channel has, it's all family-friendly um, shows and many um, sort of frontier romance stories and so on. And so in this one, there was a character who needed to get his arm amputated, and at that time, the only thing they would do is, you know, take a saw to it. And so, but of course, it's the Hallmark Channel, so they don't want to show anything too grisly or horrifying. So <laughs> they can't. They they pan the camera away outside the building, and all you hear coming from inside is. And my wife was so terrified. She said, no. And so now if I ever want to freak her out, I just kind of walk up and go. Okay. It's exactly that. The, 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 the imagination. I mean, a psycho, you know, the great shower scene, you don't actually really see much. Yeah. You hear the, the water running and you see the blood. You don't see the slashing. So in your books... Who's one of your favorite villains that you've created in the stories that you've told? One of my favorites um, is a character called, his only name is Tooth. Uh, and actually he's a, an American army vet, um, a former sniper who's a hitman. Um, he doesn't like anybody. Um, he has, he lives on a, Turks and Caicos Island uh, with his associate, which is which is a mush of a dog called Yasarian. <laughs> he na- named him after the only book he ever read in his life, which was Catch Twenty Two. <clears throat> and Tooth just he has a, he has a flat fee and and he does he does things for people. 
Um, and he's just got, and he once a year on his 40th birthday, he plays Russian roulette. Um, <laughs> so, not his 40th birthday, every year on his birthday, his birthday present is to have, he gets, has several large whiskers and, and plays Russian roulette. Um, and I like, I like it because he has absolutely kind of no moral compass whatsoever. Um, but he's quite funny and he has a kind of catchphrase which is he doesn't do this he doesn't do that you know tooth didn't do thank yous uh, he didn't do manners he didn't do nice so he's kind of fun one I, one I really love um, and another is not in a crime novel but is, I've just I've got a standalone coming out um, on, on October the fourth called Absolute Proof which is a thriller I've been working on since 1989 and it's about around the theme of what would happen if somebody credible claimed to have absolute proof of God's existence and one of the central characters in this book is an American or he's a British Anglo-American television evangelist uh, you know, he's a billionaire. He's got churches across America and England, um, and basically, you know, he gets. You, know, you send him twenty dollars, and he'll send. He'll say a prayer for you. Uh, you know, he needs to buy a bigger, a bigger jet than the seven three seven he currently has to carry out God's mission uh, more efficiently. You know, he is everything that a, that a, that a completely uh, crooked person of the cloth should not be. Sorry, everything that a person of the cloth should not be. And I, and I love him. He's, he's called Wesley Wens, the Reverend Wesley Wenceslas. <laughs> uh, and he's just a monster. Now, have you ever created a villain, Peter, who scared you, who frightened you as you were writing him? The a great question. Um, yes, I think in... Um, well, there's... I've met... I, I do quite a lot of talks in prisons because one of the charities that I'm a big supporter of in the UK is called The Reading Agency. And it tries to encourage people literacy basically the, the, the terrible indictment on the British education system is that 50% of the inmates in UK jails have a reading age below 11 years old hmm. I regularly do talks in prisons right, different categories from the equivalent of a supermax down to kind of open prisons and I do in some of those meet some really quite fascinating people and also quite terrifying but one who really scared the hell out of me was a woman and this was um, it was in a woman's prison and in men's prisons in England they're categorised like A, B, C, D so A is maximum security like a supermax down to D in open prison in women's prisons they lump them all together hmm. and when I do talks to them I found they, they often sit in groups so you get a group of like 18 to 25 year olds and they tend to be the sex workers. Then you get this group of like 20 to 40 year olds and they tend to be mostly drug dealers. And, and then you get this group of 40 to 60 year old, quite hard bitten ones. And they tend to be the husband killers. Hmm. And there was this one woman sitting in this latter group 
who was asking me, well, as I was giving my talk, she was asking really smart questions about literature. She was asking about Dickens, about Hemingway, about Faulkner. And I thought to myself, wow, you're a smart lady. I wonder what you're in for. And my, my guess was maybe she killed somebody drink driving, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I get to mingle at the end, and I make a beeline for her, and I say, oh, you know, what, what brought you in here? Sorry, I, sorry, I never say what brought you in here. I say, how much longer did you have to go? And she looked at me and she said, nine and a half more bloody years. <laughs> it's just not fair. As a woman did exactly what I did in London, she's only got six more years. I said, oh, you know, what brought you in here? Well, I poisoned my mother-in-law, the old bag. <laughs> I said, okay. She said, well, the thing was, she went into hospital to die. So I embezzled her bank account. And the bloody woman didn't die. She came back home. Well, I realized she'd find out, so I decided I'd better poison her. And then I realized my, my husband would find out. So I thought I'd better poison him too, and, it, and it's just not fair. The woman did exactly what I did in London. She has only got six more years to go. <laughs> and when they being taken out of the prison, I said to the officer, I said, is that, is that woman for real? I said, absolutely, sir. Her husband was on life support for three months. He's got permanent brain damage, and she's just angry about the length of a sentence. <laughs> and I thought, you have... The, you have to be a character, and I, and I made her a character in my uh, previous Roy Grace novel, which is called Love You Dead. I kind of down-aged her a little bit, but I yeah. made this monster of a kind of a black widow character. And actually, this character quite scared me because I, 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 I had this image of this woman I'd met in the prison constantly in my head when I was writing her. And, and the fact that she absolutely had no sense of guilt whatsoever, just outrage that she should be put away for so long. And it's, when you meet someone like that, um, and I've met um, male equivalents who have no conscience whatsoever about, about killing somebody, that's, I find, very scary because you know, most of us are born with you know, an, Ill, an inbuilt sense of morality. And, and what and decency and what's right and wrong. When you meet somebody who doesn't have that, I mean, a true psychopath, yeah, somebody who has no empathy, um, they are very frightening because you just do not know what what they're thinking, what they're thinking when they look at you. There was w- one of my books. Um, there's a character who's very cold-hearted, just as you've described, and and at the end, in the in the climax, finally, the hero says to him. Why are you doing this? Why why was he killing people? He says, why are you doing this? And the gentleman thinks for a moment, and he just says, it's interesting to watch people die. And when I wrote that line, I felt this chill. I was like, there really are people out there who just find it interesting. They don't feel bad about it. They don't have any remorse. They just say, I wonder what would happen if I killed this person and watched. And those characters really frightened me. Oh, do you know something? Just just last week, it's very interesting you just said that, Stephen, because just last week um, I was having um, tea with, with, with a cop, and he was telling the story of some years back when he was on patrol um, in the east of England in a county called Norfolk, and there was a bank robbery, and... The guy had got off in a getaway car, and the description was radioed around, and this guy was out in his patrol car and saw it. And he said the guy was driving very sensibly within the speed limits, indicating. So he sat behind it, 
not sure that he had the right car for about five miles. Then suddenly this car stopped. The guy got out, pulled a Colt 45 out and fired it straight through the windscreen at him. Oh, my Lord. And he said it clipped past my, my right ear, missing, missing me by you know, an inch. He said, I, I reversed the car, put it at an angle, and the guy then fired six more shots into my car. He said, luckily I was single crew, so I was able to dive onto the passenger seat. One shot hit me in the leg and just missed my femoral artery. And the guy shot off. And he wasn't caught. And he said, I was in absolute agony. I suffered several years with post-traumatic stress from it. And then we then heard that the guy was caught after another robbery. And my counsellor thought I should go, might be good, useful to go see him in jail. So I did. And he said, I went to see this guy, and he was a little Greek guy. And he said, I was determined that I wouldn't shake hands when I went up to his prison cell. But I, I did. And I just looked at him, and I said, you know, why did you shoot, shoot me? You didn't have to shoot me. If you just pointed the gun at me, and you know, we're not armed in the English police, I would, have, I would have backed off. He said, I shot you because it's a tool of my trade. Hmm. Simple as that. I shot you because that's what I do. Yeah. No, absolutely no remorse whatsoever. Yeah, those are terrifying, yeah. When somebody has that absolute, it's a different, a whole different morality to your own. Yeah, that, to me, that is something that if you had to define evil, that's, that's evil. Well, let's turn the tables for a moment and chat about what makes a great hero in a crime story or a crime novel. Um, I think that they should be, in a sense, you know, admirable, at least likable in some ways, maybe intriguing. But what are your thoughts about the, the protagonists, the heroes, the detectives that you've constructed over the years of what makes them intriguing to readers? I think um, I always love that great old Raymond Chandler line that a, that a man should walk down mean streets who is not himself mean. <laughs> but I think when we read a mystery novel, we are, we are we're picking up a book that we know is going to frighten us. And I think first and foremost, what we want in an uncertain world is some level of certainty that our hero whether it's Jack Reacher or whoever else it is, is at the end of that book going to make the world safe again for us, the world that we've entered. Uh, So I think that with a really good heroic detective character and and people, you've got a number of things going. One is somebody that people actually like is is really important. Um, if you have somebody who's a complete shit and the readers don't like him, you're going to lose a lot of readers instantly. Um, don't have to, to love him, but I think they have to like him. They have to feel... I mean, with my character, Roy Grace, who's been my central character for the last 14 crime novels, um, I always say that if I was unlucky enough to have a member of my family murdered, Detective Superintendent Roy Grace is the man I'd want running the inquiry. Um nice. You know, he's got a lot of kind of humanity about him, a lot of warmth, he's bright. Um, 
you know, he's nice looking without being kind of chocolate box handsome. And but what he's got is a genuine love of the people he meets, the lo- the love of the victims. I mean, I've been going out with the police for the last on a regular basis for the last 25 years and I've met many homicide detectives and there are good ones and there are really, really bad ones mm. um, and you know, occasionally you'll see on a, tel- a television cop show a, a kind of homicide detective who's kind of rude and arrogant, doesn't want this doesn't want that and they make the worst police officers because what what a a really good police officer does is what makes a really good detective is is two completely opposing character traits. Back in 1987, I was out with the police in Brighton, and they and they they said, "Oh, there's a young homicide detective you might like to meet." And, and I, I went into this office, and I've never seen a mess like it. It was a tip. It was full of blue and green plastic crates bulging with manila folders, and behind it was just visible a head. <laughs> and I said, "Oh, you." And it was, he was, I said, are you moving? And this guy looked at me and said, no, these are my dead friends. And he had one of those sort of slightly sardonic grins. And, and he, I thought, great, I've met the only weirdo in, in Sussex. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, actually, he said, I'm a homicide detective. I've just been tasked with opening all the unsolved murders in the county of Sussex where there is still somebody alive who could benefit from the investigation or that we might be able to arrest is that each one of these 35 crates contains the principal case file of an unsolved murder. And the last chance the victim has for justice, Hmm. and their families have for closure. And I love that really human image about him. And I started chatting to him. He said, what are you you writing at the moment? And I I was halfway through at that time a psychological thriller called Denial. And he said, tell me about it. So I start telling him the story. He said, hold on a sec. I don't think your characters have done that. And, and why haven't they got an outside inquiry team doing this? And I don't think your detective would have done that. I think you would have done... And I said, oh, this guy had a really creative side to him. And it's something that I've learned about good homicide detectives subsequently is that they have two completely opposing characteristic traits inside one human being. The, the first is that they are very anal um, because every major crime... It's a huge puzzle of hundreds, sometimes thousands of pieces that have to be painstakingly fitted together. But so many crimes also are solved by just out, out of the blue sky thinking, just completely left field. Huh. And Dave Gaylor, this guy, who then was a, a detective inspector, had both of these characteristics in spades. Um, and, it, and it made him a very kind of interesting and unusual character and I started working kind of closely with him and I think you know what came across most of all was that human side that he actually cared for the victims and for the and for the families and so often you'll see uh, both in the states and in the UK and elsewhere in the world a, a cop who's been on a murder case for 20 years he's come up to retirement or she or she come up to retirement and can't let go. Yeah, they still carry on into their retirement working on that case. And I think it's because when you have a really good cop, they actually do get that emotional attachment. And I think that's what makes 
a really great hero. It's not just somebody who's able to fire a gun and drop something at 500 yards. It's somebody who actually has an emotional connection with the work they're doing. Over the years, as I've uh, interviewed different people, that idea of emotional resonance has come up again and again with people who've written different genres of fiction, people who are professional speakers. This idea of creating someone that we want to spend time with and maybe is likable in maybe, like I think you said it, you don't have to love them, but you need to like them, like being around them. And then just this idea of emotional connection. And I feel like that's a core element of storytelling, really, no matter what type of story you're, you're, um, you're spinning out there. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we, I think there's three things that make us enjoy a book. Um, and, you know, and when I'm writing, I, you know, they're, they're, they're the kind of three things that I kind of really obey. And, and in this order, which is character, research, and plot, you know, I think first and foremost we read books to find out what happens to characters that we can, that we meet in the opening lines and engage with. Um, but kind of underpinning those characters has to be the, the research, because I think everyone who reads, by the, the mere fact that they're reading, it means that they're smart. You know, and I think people, you know, I always treat readers like I always imagine my readers to be like myself. And when I when I read a, a novel, so I pick up a mystery novel, I don't just want a puzzle solved, a good gunfight and a car chase. I actually want to learn something about the human condition, about the world in which we live, about why people do the things they do, in particular why they do the terrible things, what makes a monster. You know, I think every time I pick up a book, the one I put down feel the most satisfied about is the book where I feel I've actually learned something. Wow, I didn't know that before. So I, I put kind of character first, research second, and, and plot a long way third. You know, plot is really important. But if you don't like the characters, if you don't believe the author has gone that extra mile to actually give a depth to the book, are you ever going to really get as far as caring about the plot? Yeah, I think that's um, that's a great way to look at it, and I think um, people can tell if you haven't done the research, if you haven't really put in the mileage to make sure that um, not only is it believable, but you know when they read it, they kind of buy into the story. If 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 they don't find it believable, my experience is no matter how interesting the plot is or how intriguing the characters, if they don't buy it and they say this yeah, this could never happen then you've already shot yourself in the foot. Absolutely. And there, there was a really um, interesting kind of aspect to that, which is, I think, Aristotle once said, he said that, uh, and it's, it's a hard one to get your head around, but it's a really important one in writing, particularly when you're writing any kind of action or any kind of, anything in the kind of thrill of aim. And Aristotle said that uh, a likely impossibility is always preferable to an unlikely possibility. Hmm. And I think a classic example of an unlikely possibility would be a Bond movie. You know, Daniel Craig jumps out of a helicopter onto the roof of a moving train. Um, 
in reality, if anybody did that, they'd be killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he does it, and you go, yeah, maybe I could do that. Um, uh, and, and I think it's always finding that, that, that bit that makes the reader punch the air. That we, you know, we, we are, we are not making something kind of. You're making the believe, the unbe- the unbelievable believable. Is, is I think is is a, is a very big element. And I like reading books that um, that do give me new information about something that I maybe have thought I kn- I knew everything about before. Maybe it's a location I've been to, and I think oh, I re- I already know all about that or situation, maybe a historical event. And then you read the story, you realize, man, I had no idea. There's more complexity to this. There's more. Um, it's more interesting, you know, than I'd ever imagined. And and uh, and I like what you said too about having finished the book. Maybe you feel like you understand human nature, the human condition, a little bit more. So, especially people writing in the crime suspense genre, you really need to be a bit of a student of human nature, a bit of a psychologist in a sense. Oh, I think I think very much so. I, I actually work um, when I'm writing. I have both a child psychologist and adult psychologist that I kind of run characters by and and, you know, and a forensic psychologist as well because I want to try and try always to get kind of the human nature aspect of, of that right. But also I find fascinating is how different countries do actually have different kinds of villains. Um, in, in, my, in my new book, in, in Dead If You Don't, um, I got asked by. I work quite closely with the police in England, particularly with the down in Sussex, where the kind of books are centred. And uh, they often will suggest that I write about something to highlight it. And, and the police uh, in Brighton, the last few years, have been having a big problem with the Albanian community. Um, at the end of the Kosovo War. Brighton was one of the big settlement areas, and there are 2,000 Albanians in Brighton. And culturally, they cannot believe it's possible to have a, an honest or trustworthy police officer, because in their country, the average pay for a cop is $2,000 a year. So they're all corrupt. And Sussex police have had a big problem because there is a criminal element among them that is very violent. They like to settle their scores out in public. You know, they do public shootings, executions, and even public torture just to show mm. others not to mess with us. And they wanted me to kind of write and include the Albanian community, in, if I could, in some way and, and show the Albanians engaging with the police in a positive way. Hmm. And I, part of my research, I felt I needed to go to Albania because one of my characters is a girl from Albania in a village who comes to England. And everybody said, oh, don't go. It's really dangerous out there. You're probably going to get killed. It's still kind of wild west. Anyhow, we we did go, and we didn't get killed. <laughs> but it was, but it, what, what was fascinating, I was just talking to the and I was over there to an Albanian, and I said, you know, how does, you know, okay, you don't have any respect for the police, 
and how do things kind of work? Uh, and, and he said, well, take something that you have in England, like car insurance, automobile insurance. He said, we don't really have that here. He said, we have another system. Uh, I said, what's that? He said, well, I'll give you an example. My brother, eight months ago, in his old Volkswagen Golf, bashed into a big black BMW limousine. Not a big bash, but you know, he did probably a couple of thousand bucks worth of damage. And the driver gets out of the, the, the limousine, walks over to him with his car keys and says, you bring back one week fixed or you dead. <laughs> That's car insurance Albanian style. <laughs> now, this, um, this new book of yours, Dead If You Don't, um, tell us a little bit more about it, about the plot. Um, I, um, I haven't had a chance to finish reading it yet, but, um, but I know it's getting great reviews out there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I went uh, straight to number one after three days. I was really pleased. But my biggest selling book to date, actually, so I'm really, really happy about that in in the UK. Um, it's I, I always wanted to write a book that took place over 24 hours. I thought it'd be a really good challenge. And in fact, the, the principal action of this takes place over 36 because I, I decided 24 was too tight. Um, and the one kind of crime that does tend to get sold, if it's going to be sold, it's going to be sold very quickly, is kidnap. Um, mm-hmm. If the kidnap is not solved within 24, 48 hours, it's more than likely not going to be a good outcome. Um, and I I thought it would be interesting to to write a kidnap novel but actually to put a real spin on on the classic kind of kidnap so that the, the basic story starts with a father who's very wealthy guy everybody knows him as a kind of multi-millionaire but what they don't know is he has a secret gambling habit and he's just basically really down on his luck about none of his family know this but he's about to lose his house he's about to lose everything he's about to have to take his kid out of school and he takes his, his 14 year old boy to big football game and as they arrive he bumps into a client he turns around to say hello when he turns back his son has vanished mm. uh, and the next thing he gets a, a ransom demand uh, you know, for a one and a half million pounds in bitcoins uh, and he doesn't have the money and the story goes on from there. Now, um, you said that you've um, also consulted with psychologists and child psychologists. Um, I'm interested about the impact that this would have on the person who was kidnapped. It has a huge impact. I mean, the psychologists that I talk to say that somebody who's kidnapped never recovers from it. Hmm. They, will, they will be traumatized for the rest of their life. And, and I think that's something that the perpetrators don't know and, and, and clearly don't care about. Uh, it's not, not in their interest to care. But it has a, a massive impact on people. Um, I think crimes in general, I mean, I've met many victims of crimes. I, I wrote 
on the very difficult subject of rape um, a few books back. Um, I read a novel called Dead Like You. And I I met the police arranged for me obviously with their with their permission and many of them with their enthusiastic consent to meet um a number of rape victims. And I always remember one of them said to me, it, it's like having your soul murdered. Mm. You know, you can you can never trust anybody again. Um and I think that one of the things that crime fiction, mystery fiction tends to not show is really the the aftermath of a crime. You know, and we're all kind of guilty of it to an extent, or I say all, most of us, you know, we, we tend to write about the, the the chase and the capture. But that's only the beginning of the story hmm. for both the police and for victims. You know, for a victim of crime, you know, the the the, sus, the suspect being arrested is is a start of a trauma, a really traumatic journey because it's that it's that person who raped them, or that person who tried to murder them, or that person who murdered their husband or father or brother or sister going to get convicted, and and if he or she does get convicted, how long are they going to be in prison for? Uh, what's going to happen if they ever come out? Are they going to come after me because I gave evidence, or or they feel me? They feel I'm unfinished business. Mm. Uh, and, and, and we don't see that so much, obviously, because it's not the exciting part of, of, of mystery writing. But the the victims that give us all so much of our our stories um, are the people who are, are left. And, and forgotten and never never recovering and and we forget also that the police get emergency services get traumatized too um, and that, that I remember the recently the head of the ambulance service in the UK saying wearing a uniform does not protect you from trauma hmm. you know I, I, I've got a great friend who's a traffic cop and traffic cops certainly in the UK and I imagine it's the same in the States too are very often the first people on the scene at, at, sure. at, a, at a crime in action you know it's getaway car it's the traffic cops that, that get on the chase and this friend of mine about eight years ago was called to a scene and arrived first and it was a, a couple having a very acrimonious divorce and they had two small children aged three and five and the mother had gassed these two children and tried to set it up so it would look like her, her estranged husband had done it. Oh, my goodness. And, and the tra- this traffic cop friend of mine arrived there, and, and both kids were blue. They were already dead. And he said, I spent you know half an hour in this gas-filled room trying to resuscitate them, knowing there wasn't any hope until the ambulance turned up. And then I had to go home and bathe and put to bed my own three- and five-year-old kid. And people forget that side of what of what, you know, what what police officers see. Now, when you were when you were working on Dead If You Don't, were some of these instances and experiences in your mind shaping the way that the story would would unfold with this kidnapping? Yeah, uh, always. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always. I'm always trying to write from. 
because for me I find it the most challenging and the most interesting from three perspectives I always try to write from the perspective of the victim from the perspective of the villain and from the perspective of, of the police and, and my detective superintendent Roy Grace and his team so I'm always trying to trying to show an intercut between between three as to yeah, who who the victim is, how the victim reacts, uh, how the villains do, and how they react, and, and and what what the police procedures are. Now, Peter, you've been writing you know crime novels for many years, and I'm I'm curious if you've picked up any specific um, words of advice over the years, or you know maybe. Maybe something for an aspiring writer today. What what would be a word of advice that you might share with them, or something that's been important to you as you've been as you've been writing all these years? I think that the best advice I can give to any aspiring writer is to remember that writing is a craft, and that the more you write in many ways, the better at it hopefully you'll get. But what you need to do is, remember, if you were going to be a motor mechanic, you would take an automobile engine to pieces and put it back together. And I advise any would-be writer, and this is how I, I started, I would take a book that I really admired, and you know, the big, big best-selling novels that I really admired, and I would deconstruct them in my mind. I would literally dismantle them as if I was dismantling an engine, and, and to see what made them work. How did the author of that book? How, you know, how did Stephen King in The Shining, or Our Eleven in Rosemary's Baby, um, or Graham Greene in Brighton Rock? How did they hook me? What was it? What did they do? How did they make me care for those characters? Even those bunch of middle-aged, misfit, petty criminals in Brighton Rock, I actually found them quite endearing. What made me like them? Uh, and reading, deconstructing the really successful novels of, of the kind that you wish you, you could write is the best advice I can give. We all learn from our peers. Well, that's good. I think a lot of people don't take it that seriously, Peter. I think they assume, well, I learned to write, I can spin out a book, and, and I find it really fascinating and, in fact, encouraging that you mentioned that you've been working on this one book um, since 19, what did you say, 1989? 1989. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Proof. Yeah. Yeah. I got, yeah, I had, a, I had a phone call out the blue in 1989 from a, before I was ex-director, <laughs> luckily, from an elderly guy I said is that Peter James the author and I said yes he said thank god I found you it's taken me two weeks and I phoned every Peter James in the phone book in the south <laughs> uh, Mr. James I'm not a lunatic I was a fleet air arm pilot in the war I am a retired university professor I have been given absolute proof of God's existence and I've been told you're the man to help me get taken seriously and I get okay <laughs> he said, uh, he said, I'm going to need to come to you, Mr. James, and I'm going to need four days of your time. 
I said, <laughs> uh, his name is Harry F. Harry F. Nixon. I said, Mr. Nixon, I'm a pretty busy guy. You know, four days is, a, is an ask, and I give you half an hour, you know, half an hour and a cup of tea. And it's, you know, if you need more time, we'll play it by air. He said, all right. He said, I said, I said, before we go any further, do you want to just give me a bit more information? He said, yes. He said, my wife, who's also a university academic, recently died of cancer, and before she died, we made an agreement that I'd go to a medium and try and communicate. And I did this, and instead of my wife coming through, a male came through who said he was a representative of God. God was extremely concerned about the state of the world and felt that if mankind could have faith in him reaffirmed, it would get us back on an even keel. And as proof of his bona fides, he gave me three pieces of information nobody on earth knows. And he said, the author, Peter James, is the person who will help me get taken seriously. <laughs> Long story short, he came down to my house, and I got him a cup of tea, and yeah, he was a very nice man, about 75. He looked you know, nicely dressed and very polite. And I said, you know, so what are these three pieces of information? He said, well, I had been given the location of the tomb of Arkhanatum, who was Tutankhamun's uncle, the first monotheist pharaoh. I'd been given the location of the Holy Grail and the location of the Ark of the Covenant. Compass coordinates. And I gave it the I said, well, have you looked for any of these? He said, yes. He said, um, you know, I'm, I'm a former pilot in the war. Um, yeah, I know how to navigate. And the Holy Grail is at a place called Chaliswell in Glastonbury in Somerset. And I have been dousing there, and I've been there with a metal detector, and there's something in the exact spot. And it's run by a group of trustees, and they won't give me... I've asked for permission to an archaeological dig, and they won't take me seriously, but I think they would take you seriously, Mr. James. <laughs> uh, I've never heard of Chaliswell before, but Glastonbury is a place in Somerset, and Chaliswell, it's a very mystical place, and Chaliswell is a holy site up the side of a hill where Joseph of Arimathea then discovered his rumoured to have brought the Holy Grail after the crucifixion and buried it. Anyhow, keeping the story very short, um, he leaves me as this manuscript that has been channeled to him, he claims by God, and trundles off into the, into the night. The next day, by sheer chance, I had to go to Bristol to do a radio interview for a book promotion. And the interview ends, and I'm chatting to the presenter, and she suddenly mentions Chalice Well. <laughs> very weird. I've never heard Chaliswell before, and now it's twice in two days. So I then say, what do you know about Chaliswell? She said, oh, my uncle's a trustee. <laughs> now I think something is going on here. And I left, and I phoned up a friend of mine who at that time was the Bishop of Reading, and I said, I need to come and talk to you. So we met a couple of days later and had lunch, and I told him the story, and I said, what do you, his name was Dominic Walker, and I said, what do you think, Dominic? He said, well, I'd want more than three sets of compass coordinates to have proof of God. I said, what would you want? He said, well, I'd want something that defies the laws of physics of the universe, like a pretty impressive miracle. And I said, okay, if somebody could deliver that, what then? He said, you know what I honestly think? They'd be assassinated. Hmm. He says, what is it going to be? Which faction of the Anglican Church or the Catholic or the Judaic or the Islamic or the Sikhs? 
uh, is it going to be? You're not going to have the Chinese aren't going to want a higher power usurping them. And I thought, yes, I've got my story. <laughs> that was kind of the starting point. And, and I, from 1989, when I when I had that that moment, I kind of talking to every kind of theologian I could find and every atheist to ask them the two questions of what would it be that would convince them beyond any doubt of the existence of God and what do they think the consequences would be um, and, and finally about five years ago um, it all sort of clicked into place and, uh, and I knuckled down about 18 months ago and, and started work on the book yeah, and it's, I've written it very much in the sort of, I don't like to say the world, but it's in that kind of Dan Brown, kind of big international canvas. It actually starts, the, the book starts and climaxes in, in Los Angeles. Um, it goes to Egypt and, and a monastery in Greece and, and the UK uh, and elsewhere. Well, that sounds intriguing and fascinating, uh, and we'll certainly look forward to checking out that new book when it comes out. And in the meantime, I want to encourage all of our readers to go and read Dead If You Don't and check out the other Peter James novels that are available. Peter, when we were signing books one of those years up at Thriller Fest, the gentleman walked up and he literally had a pile of, of your books. I think they were all first editions. And I remember him walking up. He, was, he looked at me, and I think our name tags or something on the table had been switched. He looked at me curiously, and he like shook his head with disappointment. And then he realized that you were the one sitting next to me. And he was so thrilled because he could get however many. He probably had 13 or 12 or 13 different first edition novels to get all signed there. So I love um, folk like that. I love folk like that. Yeah, it was fun. So, so we want everyone to check it out. And um, where's the best place to maybe um, keep up to speed on when you might be traveling or doing a book tour, Peter? Is there a website you'd like to direct us to? Yes, it's easy. It's, it's just peterjames.com, so www.peterjames.com. And that gives a feed into I have um, my Twitter off that, Instagram off that, Facebook. And also I have my own YouTube channel. Um, so, and it puts up my appearances and, and, and everything else. Excellent. So everybody check out peterjames.com. For more information about our other guests and broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. If you want to find out more about my books, it's at stephenjames.net. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.